Lordy mercy, how are you supposed to preach after, sing after that? Talk, I mean. Actually, if you can't preach after that, there's something wrong, right? Turn to the end, Revelation. I'll begin reading in verse 6. Follow along with me, if you will. Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that is the, that, and that they may enter the city by the gates, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life pay without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. You alone, O Lord, are worthy. As J.T. read from early in the book, you are worthy to take the scroll. And here at the end of the book, you alone are worthy of worship. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take everything that we have seen and heard throughout our study in this amazing part of your Word, and that, Lord, you would help us know what we do need to know. That, Lord, you would help us to, to be the people that you have called us and saved us to be. Lord, so that we would do the things that you have created us to do, those good works that you, Lord, determined beforehand that we should walk in them. So we pray for that today. Lord, we worship you, and we pray now you'd help us worship you well as we um, hear and see you through your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last words are important. Right? I don't know if you've had the opportunity to be beside the bed or beside someone who is just about to breathe their last. I have on several occasions. Sometimes those folks are able to speak and sometimes not. And everyone who surrounds that bed, everyone who's in that setting is, is just really all ears. You know, we're just, we're just listening. We're just paying attention to what may or may not be said. Um, and I was reading this week about last words. Um, 
There was a French grammarian. His whole career was French grammar. Dominique Boer was his name. His last words, according to his biographer, were, I'm about to or I'm going to die. Either expression is used. You should laugh at that, okay? Lighten up, guys, all right? I know I'm talking about last words, but this guy was a grammarian, okay? And he's trying to decide how to say what it is he's going to say at the end. Bob Marley said, money can't buy life, right? Karl Marx's housekeeper was the only one with him as he was getting ready to breathe his last And she asked him if she could write down his last words for posterity's sake. And Karl Marx said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. Maybe so. As best as I can remember, my dad's last words were, I need to go to work. He tried to get up out of that bed and talk about needing to go to work. And that was pretty much, you know, kind of the way he lived his life. Last words give us insight into a person. Last words are those that we kind of hang on to. Last words lots of times reveal what's in the heart of someone. And as we come to these last words in the Scripture, these last words that are in the Bible, these are the last written words that God has for humanity. These are the the words that come from God Himself through his prophet, John. That's where we've been for the last year. These are the words that come from Christ himself. We'll see that, okay? Some of your versions of the Scriptures may have those red letters, all right? We don't want to get too hung up in that, in that color or whatever, but these are the words of Christ himself that we have in this last chapter. And they come from Christ through his messengers, through his prophets, if you will, through those that the Scripture tells us He's endowed with His spirit of prophecy, if you will. These words come specifically from Christ through John and, as we've seen, sometimes to John through the angels. So there's this medium, this this means by which God has given us this word. And if we remember back in Revelation 2 and 3, these are the words that come from Christ through John to His church. To his church then, to his church through the ages, and, and, and I believe Westwood to his church today. They come through John from our great shepherd, through his under-shepherd. And in many ways, I as an under-shepherd and others who take this place to, to preach the word, bring that word to you. So these last words are important. And, they, and so we kind of have come full circle in a sense. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, if you want to turn back or you can just listen in Revelation chapter 1, we had a prologue, kind of an introductory three verses, all right? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I would encourage you, if you've not yet done so, take some time and read Revelation from start to end aloud. Read it back and forth to each other if you need to. It's just amazing to see just how how the dimension of it changes in that way. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. That's the prologue. The epilogue, which we read, starts in verse 6. So understand, from Revelation 1-4 on, there is a sense in which the veil is opened. The door of heaven is opened. And we, by the Spirit, through eyes of faith, are taken up in to see. Not just to see up there, but to see here through the eyes of up there. And that has gone on now. And we came to the end last week. We came to the end of that revelation, if you will, of the new heavens and the new earth. It ended up there in 22, verse 5. 
with this amazing description of, of this city and of what life will be like in that city. So now we come to kind of the wrap-up, the epilogue. And as we see this thing unfolding before us, those words that we see before us are emphasized to be two things, trustworthy and true. Trustworthy and true. I touched on that last week at the end, and we see that here at the beginning. These words are trustworthy and true, it says in verse 6. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. These words are trustworthy and true that talked about the new heaven and the new earth that's coming to us. And it's a promise from God. That's the promise that we have. And this promise that we have from Him, as is every word in the Word, is trustworthy and true. And we have to hold on to that, church. And this is one of the most basic principles that we hold to. If you're going to start dividing and dismissing, where do you stop? Right? If if you're going to dismiss this and say, well, no, that's not really true. That's, you know, that's, that's one of those lesser important truths in the Bible. I don't know any of those. It's all trustworthy and true. So these verses, this epilogue, kind of bring us to the end of this book. And the thing that's been kind of rolling through my mind is something that that Jason introduced us to years ago. Those three words, know, be, do. Know, be, and do. And this epilogue that we're going to look at today and next week, it kind of brings about these summary truths that we should know and how that should shape us then to be the people that we've been redeemed to be and then what we should do in regard to that, how we're to live out our lives, know, be, and do. That's, that's what I'm, I believe we can see here in this concluding part of this book. This trustworthy and true word brings us full circle. Now, what I mean by that is David Garland, my New Testament professor in seminary, described Revelation as a seamless garment. Seamless garment. Meaning that what we've seen at the beginning, we see at the end. What we've heard at the beginning, we hear at the end. Literally, that's the case. The unveiling says the things that must soon take place in chapter 1, verse 1, and it says at the end... The things that must soon take place. I'm coming soon. It's the same word at the beginning and the same same idea at the end, okay? So we've come full circle in Revelation. In the beginning, it was the word that Jesus was revealing to His servants, the prophets, coming to us through His angels. At the end, verse 22, I mean verse 6 of chapter 22, God sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. In the beginning, it was the Godhead, if you will, God the Father. This is the Lord God. The Lord God said, listen to what it says in chapter 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the first and the last. In the end, in 22.13, Jesus is the one who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We'll develop that a little more in just a minute. In the beginning of Revelation, John saw these things that must soon take place. He testified to them throughout the book, and at the end he simply confirms, I, John... I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. It's a word for the church in the beginning. Chapters 2 and 3, remember, over and over we saw, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And all of these ways that we were to examine ourselves in light of the world around us that is opposed to us and to God, this world that wants us worshiping their way, believing their way, prioritizing our lives their way over and over in chapters 2 and 3. The word to the church was to be a word that was going to give us instruction, correction, to give us hope. And at the end of Revelation, I send my angels to testify about these things for the church. Church, this is for you. This is for you. This isn't for the unbelieving world. This is a word of encouragement and hope for us. So much so that there's blessings throughout Revelation. And I really haven't keyed in on this so much in a a sense of numbering them. There are seven Beatitudes, seven blessings. Again, that full, complete number. There are seven of those in the book of Revelation. 
And I don't know if you remember back in our study in Matthew as we were going through the Beatitudes, but this, this idea of a Beatitude, this idea of a blessing, this idea of what it is to mean to be whole and flourishing and happy, which is God, what He wants us to be. Well, there's those words in the book of Revelation as well. There's seven of them. Let me just, let me just read them to you. Revelation 1, 3 gives us these, these Beatitudes begin there. I lost my place here in my notes. Um, where was I? Hang on, bear with me. All right. Okay, I got it. Revelation 1, 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. All right. That same promise comes to a full turn there at the end as, as we see that promise. And just follow along as we look at these. I've gone through my book, through my copy of it, and I've kind of underlined blessed all along. Chapter 1, 3, blessed is the one we need to move forward. I still lost my place in my notes. Man, I must have got them, got them in, out of order or something. I apologize for this. Um, let's just go to the end. Go to 22.7. There was that promise of blessing in the beginning, and there's that promise of blessing in the end. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And, again, and then again in verse 14, blessed is the one who washed their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Keep those in mind as we work our way through this because those blessings are such a beautiful means of grace. And the book ends with grace just as it begins with grace. Do you notice that? In verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Back in the beginning, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. Grace at the beginning and grace at the end in Revelation. But what about the whole book? I don't mean the book of Revelation. I mean the whole book of God's Word. Because we come full circle in God's redemptive story. We come full circle from Genesis to Revelation. We've said all along, you cannot understand Revelation the way we need to if we don't understand all the scriptural record. Not in the fullest sense, you get what I'm saying? Without the Old Testament, we can't understand the New. And without the Old Testament, we really can't understand Revelation. So think a minute about what we've seen as we've worked our way through it. The Bible begins with creation, right? In the beginning, God created. In the end, it ends with the new heaven and the new earth as God recreates what was broken and cursed. Genesis begins with chaos, right? The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. There was darkness. There was chaos. In Revelation at the end, follow me here, God allows chaos to re-enter after He has spoken order into that chaos in the beginning. It was chaotic in the beginning. He spoke order and it was good. But then with the brokenness, chaos enters. And in Revelation, that chaos continues. And God seems to remove the restraint. And through what we see being poured out in the scrolls being opened, the trumpets being blown, and the bowls being poured out, chaos just goes and goes and goes and goes. And as we've sung, it seems like it's out of control. But it's not, right? It's not. See that. And so as God removes His order, He then restores it. So, so everything in Genesis 1 that was undone throughout the rest of Scripture is being redone, reestablished, recreated at the end. It's beautiful to see. Before the fall, God walked with man in the cool of the garden. But then they're cast out, prohibited from coming in. And at the end, praise God, at the end, we see His face. The dwelling place of God is with man. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. So it's restored. In Genesis, the tree of life, it's restricted. They're not allowed. In the end, it's open. The gates are open. Anybody can come in and, and, and go to that tree. In Genesis, the ground is cursed. And so are the people that walk on it. And we don't need... We don't really need to read Scripture to see that, right? All we got to do is turn on the TV. we just got to hear of lives lost in storms, of people that we love dying unexpectedly. 
We, we see it all around us. Under the weight of sin, this world is cursed. Paul says that all of creation is groaning together. And it, creation itself, he says in Romans 8, is waiting to be set free from the corruption of bondage that will come through the children of God being redeemed. In the end, that curse is gone. Behold, I am making all things new and there is nothing accursed. In Genesis, at the beginning, Satan disguises himself as a serpent and comes and lies and deceives and questions the goodness of God. And the liar and the deceiver does that throughout Scripture, but praise God in Revelation, it says in chapter 20, the devil who deceived was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. His head is crushed. That was promised in Genesis. It's brought to fullness, to fullness in Revelation. Here's one other thing I was thinking about this week. We're not told in Genesis that Adam and Eve cried. But I cannot imagine that they did not. I do believe that after the curse, she cried through childbirth. And I do believe, because the Scripture says so, that the blood of Cain cried from the ground or the blood of Abel, rather, cried from the ground. And that cry is still heard now. But it won't be at the end, right? It won't be at the end. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. So this thing, this, this whole redemptive story is brought full circle. I wanted to take a second and develop that church because it's important for us to just once again be encouraged and just to know, okay, to know that this, this Scripture is one story. It's one story. And the book of Revelation can be confusing. It can be discouraging in places. But it was given so that our hope would be firm. And so that we can see our God complete what He has started. I'm encouraged by that. I'm thankful for that. This trustworthy and true word brings us full circle. This trustworthy and true word, here's what I want to do today and, and, and next week. I want us to focus today on the word that is trustworthy and true that comes from Christ himself. And then next week, God willing, we will take that word and see how it's applied in our lives, see what our response is to be. Revelation doesn't have a whole lot of words in it that are commands to us. There are some, but as we take the, the whole picture that we have in Revelation of who these words come from, what these words mean to us, then, then we will see a response that is there. And there are some, 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 some commands for us, but today I want us to focus for just a minute on this trustworthy and true word that comes from Jesus himself, all right? Now in chapter 21 and verse 5, look at that. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Same thing in verse 6 of chapter 22. These words are trustworthy and true. So it's important that we just have that grounded in our hearts, that we understand that. And these trustworthy and true words to us are filled with, and I believe the whole thing is really a promise. It's a promise to us. Three times in this passage, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20, what does Jesus say? I am coming soon. You can memorize a verse today before you leave, all right? You can do that. I am coming soon. Let that word just burn into your mind and into your heart. Three times that word comes, and seven times in chapter 22 is some form of that word. Seven times there's some indication, some form of the word come. So it's a word that is before us. And that's a word that is a promise, but listen, it's a fulfillment of a promise already given. Here's what I mean. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 6, you'll be familiar with this. When they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. There's a promise there. And that promise is what we see here in the book of Revelation. So it's a word of promise that should fill us with expectation. It's happening soon. Three times he says that. And this, this idea of soon, there's, there's an urgency to it, right? There's an expectation to it. There's, there's, there's this idea, it's, it's coming. It's coming. Now, I know what we're all thinking. It's been coming for a long, long time. Jesus said this a long time ago. And so there again, with eyes of faith and a kingdom perspective, we're called to understand this, if we will, from, from God's point of view. As Peter tries to help us understand in, first, in 2 Peter 3, don't overlook the fact, beloved, that the Lord doesn't keep time the way we do. And praise God that He doesn't. He doesn't keep it on a calendar or He doesn't keep it on a watch. Peter says that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. It's patient that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus makes this promise, I'm coming soon. I, I have to be careful. Some of you will know this about me. I know this about others as well. But I have to be really careful not to make careless commitments. Not to make casual commitments. Right? People listen to that. And people have expectations. Jesus doesn't ever do that. Jesus does not ever make careless intentions or casual commitments. If He says it, He will do it. And He says, I'm coming soon. And this is a word of promise and expectation that filled those readers and those listeners when this letter was first read out loud with amazing hope because they were facing it, church. They were right up in the middle of it. This is a trustworthy and true word that gives us hope. It's also one that gives us blessing. And this is, this is where I lost my place just a minute ago. The blessing that comes from those who read this prophecy aloud in chapter in 1. The blessing to those, it says in chapter 14, who die in the Lord. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. In chapter 16, blessed is the one who stays awake. He's not talking about right now, although there's a blessing to that too. He's talking about those who stay awake in the meantime while they're waiting on Him to come back. Don't grow lazy. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping His garments on, that He may not go about naked or be seen exposed. In chapter 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In chapter 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection because the second death, it says, has no power over that one. And then what we've seen, verse 7 and 22, I am coming soon, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life. So these last two, these last two beatitudes, blessed, happy, fulfilled, flourishing, are coming to those who keep the words of this prophecy. King James, the King James Version says, those who obey the commandments. It's interesting that, you know, there can be that distinction in these translations. Those who keep the commandments and those who keep the words, if you will. And, and I understand, understand where they're coming from. The same idea is, is, is applied later on to those who wash their robes. So, so just track with me here for just a second. The idea to keep is the idea of guarding or keeping sacred. We keep our china someplace different so the kids can't take it out and make mud pies in it. To keep, to protect, to guard. So the idea here is what Jesus said in John 14. If you love me, you will keep. You'll guard You'll protect, you'll, 
You'll live by my commandments. In 1 John 2, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In Matthew 28, it's the command that we're given. We're to go and make disciples, teaching them to keep all those things that Christ has taught us. So the blessing comes to those who keep the word. So in keeping it or in protecting, and I think we all understand, we don't have to protect God's word. God can take care of that, right? But as we keep it, as we obey it, we magnify it, right? We make it large and visible to people around us. And Paul, as he wrote to the New Testament church, writing to Timothy, he said, I'm, I'm writing these things so you know how, to, how you ought to behave in the household of God, which he says is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth in 1 Timothy 3. So as the church, our job is to take, our calling, our responsibility is to take the word that is trustworthy and true and lift it up, hold it up, live it out for others to see. So we don't protect it. It does protect us. It does protect us. Blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy. And then later on it says, blessed are those who wash their robes. What we wear matters in the new heavens and the new earth. There is a dress code, right? I mean, there is. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and then enter the city by the gates. As I was thinking through this this week, I was reminded of what we read back in chapter 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. For the, line, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I remember back and went back and reviewed those notes. Grace and good works. How do those two fit together? We understand that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? And throughout the book of Revelation, He has depicted and shown us to be that one who is clothed in white. That's that picture of righteousness and purity and holiness. And if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. That's the promise of the gospel. We are clothed in His righteousness by grace. But Revelation tells us that we are to clothe ourselves in righteousness. And here we're told to wash our robes. And as we saw back then, it applies here right now. We, we wash our robes in the blood and are made clean by grace. And by that same grace, we wash our robes ourselves as we walk in obedience with Christ. It's that process of sanctification, that inward work of being transformed from the inside out into the likeness of Christ. We wash our robes, we make ourselves clean as we wait faithfully for Him to come back. We, we prepare ourselves by overcoming and enduring hardship as we've seen over and over in the book of Revelation. We prepare ourselves and we wash our robes as we trust God in the face of difficulty, in the face of death like the martyrs. And we trust God and prepare ourselves as we take the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation. That's, that's, I think that's what that means. And the context and the contrast, look at what it says here. We're contrasted here. Those who are dressed this way, those who are, are preparing themselves this way, are contrasted in verse 15 with those who are outside. Look what it says. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Outside are the dogs. These aren't lap dogs. These aren't the dogs that you see driving all those cars down the road. Right? I mean, I'm talking about sitting on mama and daddy's lap, you know, and they're trying to drive a car with a dog sitting on their lap. Give me a break, please. All right? Cell phones are against the law. When will somebody have the sense to outlaw dogs driving cars? All right? Just an aside. Just an aside. These aren't pets. These, these are ravaging, unclean animals. They didn't have house dogs, lap dogs, when John wrote this. All right? Outside are dogs. Outside are those who cannot come to grips with God's sovereign control over the universe, and so they're trying to use magic to that end. Outside are those who are sexually immoral. Again, going back early in Revelation, going back to the kingdom of Babylon, going back to the, idolat to the idolatry and all that we saw from, from, from that harlot. 
those murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That's outside the city. Contrast that with those that are inside the city, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He gives us this word. There there again in verse 10, there's this word of warning and there's a word of assurance that Christ gives us. He says, do not seal up these words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. And then verse 11, this kind of weird, it's just a strange verse. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So Jesus says again, I am coming soon. Don't seal up the words of this book, John. What does he mean there? Again, if we don't understand Old Testament prophecy and those pictures that allude to this and point to this, we're we're really going to struggle with this. Revelation 22 is a fulfillment of Daniel 12. The last chapter in Daniel and the last chapter of Revelation explain each other. Flip back over to the book of Daniel. Let me just show you this right quick. Daniel chapter 12 as this amazing section of Old Testament prophecy comes to an end. Daniel is instructed in verse 4, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now follow along with me. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the bank of the stream, And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward the heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. And I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Now look at verse 9. He said to me, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end, until the time of the end. Verse 10, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So as Daniel is given this amazing prophetic word and told to shut it up, seal it up, it's not yet time, Daniel. John is told, do not seal the words of this prophecy. The time is near. The time is at hand. And this word of prophecy that came to Daniel, that in some sense explained how people would respond beforehand, John gets that same word and and, and it's coming to us. Understand that this word is not a fatalistic shrug of the shoulders that says, oh, people are just going to do what people are going to do. I don't think that's what this means. Now, in some sense, we see that that is the case, but I don't think that's the purpose of this. This word, it's a word of warning and it's a word of assurance. It's a word of warning in the sense that Daniel... As Daniel was told would happen, John is told will happen, it's, it's if you don't change, you're going to be swept away. I, I understand this is one last call to repentance. One last chance. That's what James Hamilton says in his commentary. Imagine being at the Grand Canyon and having a tour guide take you to the highest point above the ravine and the river below you. And you look over the edge and it's so high it makes you dizzy. Then the tour guide says, Let the self-assertive fool who wants to destroy himself disregard caution, ignore my instructions, and jump over the edge. It's a word of warning that seems ridiculous. I've shared with you before, Susan and I are walking across the Golden Gate Bridge when we're in San Francisco. There's signs there on the side of the bridge. Jumping over the side of this bridge could cause death and sorrow to your family. Here's your sign, stupid. <laughs> I mean, but, but in a sense, this word that, that comes to, to, to John here, seem, it's, it's just unusual. 
is it really saying, well, just go on and do what you're going to do? Just let the evildoer do evil? Let the filthy still be filthy? One writer said this, this is grown-up theology. Grown-up theology. said, ultimately, in heaven and hell, these words in verse 11 will finally be true, both for the righteous and the wicked. Those who are confirmed in their righteousness by the ministry of the Word of God will spend eternity being righteous and holy. There will be no future fall in heaven, but forever they will continue to be righteous and holy in who they are and in what they do. But for the wicked at some point, this will be spoken as a degree of judgment over them. It is a final verdict. My understanding is this, that there will be no one in hell who is crying out for one last opportunity to love God and repent. Because that heart is so hardened and so rebellious and so cursing and angry. Let the filthy be filthy still. Let the evil continue to do evil. It is a word of warning, but it is also a word of encouragement. It is a word that just gives us such great hope. It is worth it continuing in our walk of righteousness. It is worth it to continue to be holy in the way that Christ has recreated us to be holy. And there is much on the line. Notice that it says, I am coming soon again in verse 12, and I'm bringing my recompense with me. Be assured, church, be assured, faithful Christian, your faithfulness will be worth it. Be assured, unbeliever, that His judgment will come. It will come. He sees, He knows, and He will settle the score. He will judge and He will reward just as we have seen. And notice that this word from Christ is also got the authority backing it up as we see Jesus identifying Himself. Notice what it says next. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Look at what He says down in verse 16. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is self-proclaiming there His divinity and His humanity. And those liberal scholars and preachers and those who would look at the New Testament and say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God, haven't read it. They haven't read it. It's as clear as the nose on your face. And here Jesus makes it crystal clear for us to understand. There is authority behind these words. It says that He has sent His angel. And by the way, that's the exact wording that's used in the chapter 1 where the Lord God sent His angel. So the Lord and the Lamb who are seated on the throne have authority to send messengers. I love the way that this is revealing to us here. And Jesus authenticates this message in Revelation as, as He tells John and as He communicates this to the angels and as that message is coming to us. And, and so, as it, now just pay attention to this though because I want to make sure we don't misunderstand this. When I said earlier that it comes full circle, you do know I'm not talking about reincarnation, right? You do understand that life is not a circle in that sense. Understand that what Jesus says here about who He is describes for us the linear nature of life and all of human history. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the beginning of an endless circle. He says, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've seen that. Without Him was not anything made that has been made. As Jason prayed earlier from Colossians, that He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So when Jesus says that I am the Alpha and the Omega, He is saying that I am the beginning. But He is also the middle, is He not? Is He not the middle? Because that middle day of history, that Anno Domini, as we see in Latin, the year of the Lord, refers specifically to this first advent to the birth of Jesus. Everything before then is A.D., is B.C., and everything after that is A.D. He is in the middle of history. The advent of Christ, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. It's in the middle. And He is at the end. 
He is at the end. This is linear history we're talking about, church. And Jesus stands as Lord over it all. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He identifies Himself as fully divine, fully God. But He also identifies Himself as the Son of Man. He he identifies Himself with humanity. When He says that he He is the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star... What he's saying there is, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, where it says in verse 1, There shall come forth from the stump of Jesse a shoot, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's Jesus. He's also the one who is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, when Samuel made that promise that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He is the root of David. He is the offspring and he is the bright star. He is the promised star. In Numbers chapter 24, <laughs> this amazing prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It's amazing. That star that was in the sky that led those wise men to Jesus' cradle, it's it's a type. It's, It's a picture of Jesus himself, if you will. And so he is that bright morning star. So this baby that we celebrate, this baby who knew from the start who he was and proclaimed it throughout his earthly ministry and he lived it out in his life and in his miracles and in his teaching and he lived it out and died it out just as the prophets had fulfilled, had promised and just as the resurrection proved and his church has lived it out and died for it since then and now we're called to live it out and be willing if necessary to die for it because he is Lord over history. Your life begins with that date, and it ends with a date. And He's Lord over that. He's Lord over that. And because of that, He is worthy of our worship. And that's, that's kind of where we'll, we'll wrap it up and, and look at this next week. Because this, this beautiful admonition, if you will, this correction that comes to Him in verse 9. Worship God, John Worship God. So next week we're going to see what our response of worship should be. How we respond to this picture of Jesus and how we repent and obey. And how we participate in that same invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. We'll, we'll, we'll develop that next week. So how do we apply this, this self-revelation? Let me just ask you first. If, if you've never trusted in Christ, just look as the Holy Spirit will allow you to, as He opens the eyes of your hearts. And I just ask you, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? Because apart from being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in His perfect, full obedience, we cannot stand before the holy eyes of God. And so this this idea that apart from Jesus, we just have nothing to wear. None of us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've not obeyed those Ten Commandments, right? I mean, let's just reduce it down to two. We've not obeyed those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. None of us have done that. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And by grace, God has made it available to us to be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ that He sent His Son as our Lord and as our Savior to die a sinner's death and to give us the righteous life that God requires and offers as a gift. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Amen. And, and that's... So by faith you can come to Him today repenting of your sin and let your robe be washed in His blood and made pure. That's the invitation. Secondly, Christian, how are we living in light of this? Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, after he talks about this timing of God, that he doesn't mark time the way we do. He says 
if all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be living our lives, he says, in holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. So we're to live our lives in holiness and godliness. We're to, we're to be walking with Christ as our bridegroom. We're to be walking with Him and, and feeding now on His tree of life through His Word and drinking now from He who is the river of life. Looking to Him and Him alone. And then finally, church, what are we praying? This, this book ends with a prayer. Scholars tell us that this is probably one of the earliest prayers prayed by the New Testament church. And they say that based on partially on Paul's writing, where, where Paul closes out his letter to the, first, to the Corinthians, his first, first Corinthians, he closes it out with this word Maranatha. Maranatha. Taking that Aramaic term, come Jesus, come Lord Jesus. So how are we praying, church? Christmas is filled with expectation, right? I mean, oh, that God would make us like our children, anticipating the next Advent. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And His church says, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And thank You that as Your church, Lord, we stand with that countless number that no one can number singing that praise and that glory that we see in Revelation 7. Help us as Your church be filled with the awe and wonder now so that not only we sing it and proclaim it here in this building, but we go out and offer our lives as a living sacrifice to You, King Jesus, because You're worthy of that. And I do pray that if anyone, Father, anyone does not know the joy and the assurance that comes from knowing You, that, Father, they would turn to Christ, turn from their sin, and let that dark, filthy sin be washed away and claim that promise of newness that's found in Christ. Father, we pray for that. We pray for that among the nations, Lord. As we give this month for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions, as we pray for missionaries who are serving, and as we, Lord, see how You would seek for us, how You would have us go and serve and go. God, we just, we just pray for that. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.